Hello and welcome to Twin Peaks The Return, a season three podcast for our discussion of part 15 of the series. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Hayley Inch. And this week we're joined by our guests from our part 12 discussion, the very learned sound enthusiasts, Thembi Sodell and Jess Penny. Hi. Hello. So uh, jazzed to have you both Yes, back. it's a thrill to get you guys back in again. Pretty excited. Yes, thank you for having us. Of course. Um, can I begin by asking what your general impressions were? Because since part 12, we've got a lot of sound, um, exciting sound things we could talk about. And I know that you have posted some interesting opinions about particular moments um, of the last couple of episodes. Um, well, I had a sort of specific thing. But it, it, I didn't listen to everything side by side, but there was something in the last episode when Sarah Palmer was going into the bar that just, and it also happened when um, there was that weird scene with Ed's reflection. Yes, right. There was just something about the qualities of the sounds in those two scenes that reminded me of the quality of the sounds of the horses at the end of part eight. Mm-hmm. And there was, it was, I think it was sort of like a selective delay. I figured that out with Thembi's help because I just sort, I just was mostly like, this all feels the same. There's something linking these sounds. There's like only certain sounds in the whole thing that are having this odd very close delay and it was very interesting to me that it was in those three scenes right um I still haven't really worked out what it might mean Mm -hmm. because I don't but I think that there must be a connection right between each because it was such a specific use of effect Right, so do you feel like the delays are there as a, like a dramatic representation of <coughs> layers of reality or alternate spiritual dimensions that are happening simultaneously or something like this? It could be. For me, it mostly just recalled the feeling of dissociation. So there's dissociation is can be distance pretty much. So the horses were in a distance. It was after a really intense, very visceral, this is in part eight, with the heads getting crushed and everything. So it was sort of, it felt right that there was dissociation there because he kind of needed to have a bit of distance after all of that. And then with Ed's reflection being different to his own, it's almost like the way he noticed it and then the way he just went straight back to eating is kind of like a numbing behaviour of, yeah, so there was, felt like there was dissociation there and then, in the bar scene, and I have a little theory about Sarah Palmer just being dissociated most of the time that we've seen her, it made me start to think that I don't know if Sarah Palmer is aware of what's inside her because I think most of the time she's dissociated and mm-hmm. the only times we've seen her not in a dissociative state is in the supermarket when she starts to actually notice things and then I also think when she screams after she sees the body but... I know, I know Bambi doesn't agree with that, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, cause I, and I've watched it again on Sunday night before 15 came out and it is different to the, her screams that we've seen that are amazing and yes. guttural, yeah. but there is something mm. like, it's a very quick, like shocked scream. It's not a grief scream or a rage scream. It's like a, Oh my God. And then she goes straight back into, it's a, it's a big mystery, isn't it? Yeah. Or whatever totally deadpan it made me think of the two different Sarahs we saw in the supermarket and then back home mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I think um hmm, what was I going to add to that <laughs> <laughs> for me listening to the delay like I, I kind of think of that as like a 
effect that very much encapsulates that between two worlds feeling because you get the two strikes of the same thing but the way that they've done it it's not always doing that exactly precisely so there's like some things are happening twice and other things aren't so it's kind of this strange mix of the world being delayed but not all the time Right. We were talking about it and you said between two worlds and I was like, yes, <laughs> it is like it, it has that sense as well, which I also associate a bit with dissociation because you're mm. not anywhere you between. Well, yeah, and I like I think that's something that's an interesting theme that runs throughout the whole thing is that there's that representation of dissociative thing of going between two worlds, but also that is represented as a spiritual thing as well. So it's mm. it's sort of they're playing with that and you can read it in whichever way you want to, which is pretty interesting. Mm, yeah. Well, it's definitely uh, multiple ways of reading some key events in part 15's episode, so let's dive into the, our discussion of that, which is called There's Some Fear in Letting Go. There's some fear in letting go. So we open moving through trees at this sort of really unusual height, which we've only ever had once before, just before the Jackrabbit's Palace, where we're kind of moving three quarters of the way through the trees in this sort of drone shot. We're getting a lot of drone shots. Was it just me or was this the first time we've actually properly seen autumn this mm. season? Because it, it just it struck me that all of a the sudden there was gold in the trees and it was mm. we were seeing autumn and I don't remember seeing it that autumnal and yeah yeah the weather is very different in this opening scene yeah. and i think it's for thematic reasons as well as possibly yeah because obviously we've moved to that point where where you know the the date around jack rabbit's palace mm. that was floated is here yes essentially yeah. or we are here at least one strand in the story mm. so mm. yeah good call um and so also we get a lot of bird song which i think is like a foreshadowing thing that we've now by paying so much attention we're getting a bit used to what these foreshadowing Morning sounds dove. Like. Morning Dove. Mm-hmm. That's what one of them was. Oh, well spotted. Oh, my God. <laughs> Tune in for the gold takes like that that you're not going to get anywhere else. Um, it is. It's poetry. Also, I think you can counter that with the beginning of the next scene with car headlights on a road, which never leads to anything good in Lynch's world, I don't think. Um, so this gives way to a shot of Nadine marching along the edge of a highway, shovel over her shoulder, which also looks like another reverse shot. I'm not sure if you saw the cars were moving on the Australian or British side of the road, not the American. Oh. She's on her way to Big Ed's gas farm. Uh, Ed is standing in the forecourt and then the two have a conversation that covers, covers an awful lot of ground in a very short space of time. Yeah, it was very, uh, very accelerated, this scene and the scene that follows it, I kind of yeah. <laughs> For people who've been like, it's literally 50 years since they first had a crush on each other. <laughs> to get this Ed How warmer. beautiful is this? <laughs> Did anyone, anyone get teary? Yes. Very. Mm. I got really choked up. There's always been something so naive and girl-like about Nadine and I think there's even like a shadow of her that echoes it of her like with the shovel over her head and as she's walking off. I don't know, the shadow The shadow of her there really struck me as this beautiful girlish joie de vivre or Yeah, something. it was almost like Pippi Longstocking with a yeah. satchel on a stick over her shoulder or something. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah, there was a lot of really good face acting from Everett McGill. It was like he was losing something that wasn't ever good for him but was a part of him and then having to, like, make a huge decision and it all passed over his face into really quick facial expressions. And, yeah, oh, mm. it's very good. 
Yeah. I personally, I kind of have mixed feelings about this and I'm going to preface my little rant <laughs> by saying that I, I'm really excited about what happened and I did get really teary. But I've just always had this kind of mixed feelings about Ed's relationship with Nadine and how he sort of treats her in this slightly patronising way and I just, I don't know, and she's like declaring what love is and, oh God, how do I even start to begin to explain this? <laughs> I, I did think when um, Nadine was saying, I walked all the way here, he had this really old Hollywood but also, now that you mention it, quite patronising way of responding, which was, you did, you have, and it's really old Hollywood but it's also... Yeah, and also even the way he was saying what you're saying doesn't make any sense, really think about it. But then I loved her response, which was, I walked all the way here. I had and, time to think about it. Oh, it was yeah, so good. But, I, yeah, that, that's to- those are totally the things that have always driven me a little bit crazy mm. about Ed is he kind of has this thing where he's protecting her and he's looking after her and he's this really good man for doing all this. But I'm like, you've actually been in the way of her having a relationship with somebody who really loves her and who actually kind of appreciates her for who she is and doesn't think she's got these crazy ideas in her head mm which clearly she has amazing ideas because she <laughs> invented these silent drape runners, which I would love. <laughs> so I don't know. It's always I've always been a bit frustrated about that. So I was pretty excited that she just like took it by the balls and was like, mm. I'm going to make the decisions here. <laughs> yeah, but the key, the thing that triggered these decisions is something I find kind of confusing as well because of all the things you could get out of watching Dr. Amp, <laughs> making a life personal decision, like making the political you know, rebellion he's pushing a personal one of getting rid of relationships and you don't think of letting you be fulfilled, as fulfilled as you should be. seems a really weird takeaway I from think what Dr Amp is saying. I feel like maybe I identify with Nadine a little bit <laughs> and because, uh, you know, I'm a total self-help junkie and, like, that is the kind of thing I would do too is, like, some <laughs> bizarro weird thing and I'd go, right, okay, I'm going to, like, change my life because of it. So, <laughs> I don't know. And I think for a character like Nadine where it's true throughout the history of the show so many people have made decisions for her her and haven't actually asked her what she really wants or have decided that they have to behave certain ways because of her behaviour instead of actually actively interrogating her about her behaviour and finding out what it's stemming from and how they can help her do what she wants to do. Like, yeah, I have conflicted feelings about Ed as well because I feel like in a lot of ways he's just a big martyr character and he's self-martyred himself in so many ways that he never... He never had to. No one asked him to stay with Nadine. No one asked him to stay in this relationship, which was clearly so lopsided, but he felt like it was like his, I don't know, his big man duty to do so. (laughs) When, as we see here, Nadine is very resilient and Nadine will just keep on being Nadine and she will just keep on going. And the fact that she has taken it upon herself to change this situation makes you realise, oh, my God, Ed was never going to do it on his own. I agree, but I think that's why it's extra important that it was Nadine that did Mm. make this choice and it gave her a lot of agency. It gave her this moment of insight, which she hadn't really had in the show before. And even though I might not necessarily agree with how much she thinks she was a bitch or manipulative or anything like Mm. that, and Ed didn't think so either because I think Ed has known all along what he's doing. I don't know, I'm conflicted as well because I can identify with Nadine and Ed Mm. and I know what it's like 
to want to be in, in some kind of relationship with someone. And also do what you think is the right thing. Exactly. And if you think you th- you've made a commitment to someone and you're supposed to be with them even if you don't love them, a lot of people don't get to a point where they have the insight to say, oh, this is actually me stopping her from finding someone that does love her. There's psychological barriers that can stop this stuff from going well. But I'm so I'm really glad that Nadine just went... You're a, you're a big lug. Yeah, you're being too I love, good. I love that she said that line out again. That was, was one of my favourite lines. Yeah. Ed, you big lug. I know. Oh. This is how I really feel. <laughs> and, 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 and it is nice that there's clearly so much, still so much affection between them, mm. even though they've been caught in this, you know, really quite awkward situation for God knows how long now. And, yeah, it, it is highly intriguing that, yeah, this is what she got out of Dr. Amp. Maybe Dr. Jacoby's actually a really good therapist. No, he's a nightmare. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. Um, so from that encounter we get a rare wider shot of the Double R Diner in which you can see the street in which the street sign for Bendigo Boulevard, which it's, which the, the diner is on in real life in North Bend, Washington, which was a very unusual thing because it's not that wouldn't have happened by accident. So it's like an extra layer of reality we're being given now. Quite strange. Sorry, yes. that just made me think. I mean, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but because, well, first of all, I noticed how amazing Ed's Chevrolet Ute was. They so don't call good. it a Ute in America; they call it a truck, I think. But whole, oh my god, that's a beautiful car, and it's gold as well. Oh right. But then when he goes into the double R, I think they've color corrected it with this yellow soapy hazy thing and every single appliance in the double r is gold Mm. there's just gold everywhere oh my god it's like (laughs) the most beautiful and it's but it's also like that the idea that this is like extra reality actually made me start noticing colors in the rest of the episode and gave me this sense that the double r is always real Everything's balanced in there. It's mostly gold, which we know from the Laura Orb and everything is good and very good. And then there's also like there's little bits of green, there's little bits of red. So it's got this real balance in it and ugh, mm. getting too excited. Oh, fantastic. But, well spotted. Yeah. yeah. I just got so excited about all that gold. I was like, oh, my God. And then um, comes a, the big crashing sound of Otis Redding live at Monterey. <gasps> Now, I'm really keen to see what you guys make of this because this is edited in a really interesting way, musically, of course, you would have noticed. And there's lots of, as we get later in the episode, stops and starts. Mm. How did this land for you? It was, uh, yeah, it was pretty exciting. I loved that they started with this live thing that's kind of like starts with cheering because it's like <laughs> we are all fucking cheering. Like, <laughs> even though I've like had my little, you know, rant about Ed, I still am so excited that him and Norma got to get together. <laughs> <laughs> and so it like had that vibe and the way he got out of the car while it was happening. I don't know, I loved that movement. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Then as that track built up this excitement and then all those cuts were just the suspense in this scene was amazing. And making like such suspense in a love scene was just really kind of something. Every cut was like with a reverb trail and I really noticed a lot of heavy reverb in this episode. It felt like the reverb trail just then like sat really low in the mix as all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So that was right. Yep. And it also, I've like listened to that song a couple of times and the live version as well. It's one of those things where it's again like the David Lynch cut of a track because there's heaps of 
in the live performance of that, there's these like little breaks where I just reading just like gets people to do like na na na. He's like, ow, that's amazing. <laughs> and so they've like cut out those little interlude bits. But then I also just loved how the cuts happened when these sort of awful feelings happened when like Ed asked for a cyanide pill to no one and then mm. when Walter started talking some bullshit and and it always came back in these senses of like oh but it might be okay and also the shot of Ed basically meditating at the counter and like if you've seen any transcendental meditation literature you'll see people they are they look exactly like that like mm. it's got totally blank face eyes closed I was like oh it's just having a quick little meditate to deal with his feelings and yeah I felt like that was more of a you know once you've reached that age you don't act out you just sit and you feel your emotions which is mm -hmm. kind of what I did for that whole episode too it was kind of like you're just sitting with your emotions for this one. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought this was a really fascinating choice of song because it's like baby boomer gold, like distillation. This is the moment where soul, where soul music was played to hippies. This is where psychedelic <laughs> soul began. This is like a really, really, really key moment in music history, this moment where Otis Redding played because it was the last concert he did just before a, week, a few weeks before he died in a plane crash. So it's like a totally loaded performance. Oh my god! I, don't, I mean, I don't think it has any thematic it's connection to the show, but I just thought it was a really interesting cue. The lyrics do, though. Oh yeah, hugely. Oh my yeah. god! I was yeah, listening to them more closely, and it just it made it made all the little moments of Ed's heartbreaking, and then knitting back together, and just boy. Yeah. yeah. No. One of the things I do massively appreciate about Lynch in particular, see, I'll give him his props sometimes, <laughs> is he really, really understands how you can marry song lyrics to an image and how important that is to the emotional journey of going through particular stories. Like he can kind of, you know, anchor us back into a performance and often so much through lyrics, through whatever the singer is saying, tends to reflect upon what we've just seen and make certain things stronger and illuminate certain things even more or give you sneaky clues. And I really, really, really love that. Mm. Yep, definitely. Because in, sorry. Sorry. And honey, Norma's not going to regret a thing. Yeah. No. <laughs> I know, I love She's it. got yeah. her family now. <laughs> who was she talking about? Okay, who did you think she was talking about? I just thought she meant like Shelley and everybody that she cares about in the town. But mm. And mm. everyone who comes to the diner, the people yeah. who come to the diner are her family. Although, who's Annie? Who's Annie? Where's Annie? Where's Annie? Does What's she... going on there? Yeah. Because I really felt this scene could have ended with them not getting together. I mean, there was every chance of that happening. I know. It, it That's wasn't... why it was so suspenseful. It's like yeah. if this guy has spent this long oh my god I would have died and I also had all these moments as well like when you were thinking that Norma had indeed moved on with Walter I, I was almost thinking well yeah Ed she's not gonna be freaking waiting around for you too right she's gone and made some but I was also just like no but yeah that's right it was like there was so much yeah complications Ugh. but that guy was such a dick well yeah the, the, that was the thing that did it for me i was like no i know walter embodies everything that lynch and frost hate about corporate suits in la and dealing with the movie industry there's no way that he's gonna like win norma over 
But still, I was like, when that hand appeared, oh. I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> yes. I, I watched this episode with friend of the podcast, Biz- Bismuth Hoban. Mm. And um, at this point, like all through the scene where Ed was at the counter, we were literally just squeezing each other's hands. Oh. And then as soon as Norma's hand appeared, we just started screaming. We were just screaming um, apologies to Biz's neighbours. Um, it was I made, a lot. I made the mistake of watching this in a public library because I... <laughs> I don't, I, I, don't, I don't have the internet at home. I haven't oh. had it since this podcast began, but so I've been forced to watch in these oh my God, um, circumstances. Andrew. So in this case, I was like, yeah, it was, it was embarrassing. I was clutching my heart that whole scene, like just sitting there with my hand over my heart, which actually is kind of part of what made me realise this whole episode is all about the heart. Yes, so, yes, good point. Yep. Yeah. Actually, this, this was the very opening show notes was that I had was about how this is about the heart and about freedom. And deaths off screen. We get a lot of deaths off screen later on. Oh. But um, one on screen. And anyway, we'll get to that. So uh, beautiful. We get the sky shot. We get a shot of a clear sky. We get some blue. We get some the movie clouds. clouds. Cloud the textures. Cloud. Anybody yeah. who's like followed me on Instagram knows that I obsessively mm-hmm. take photos of clouds and it kind of is my connection with like love and, you know, the universe and all that crap. And so it was beautiful. Have I, any of you seen the missing pieces scene of Ed and Norma in a car listening to the theme from Firewalk With Me yes. on a distant radio? Yes. And the line, you can, they can hardly, you can hardly hear us. They were talking about how small their relationship was and how hidden it was in the in the town. I just love the juxtaposition mm. of that very distant, crackly Angela Badalamenti song with the blinding sunshine of yes. Otis Redding and Monterey. Yes, That was a really beautiful <laughs> moment. From there, from the glorious sunshine, we go to the dead of night and scratching electrical sounds and the vision of car headlights on a country road. And we get some sliding horns, like a really strange Bed Lamenti cue that's in the same key as uh, the dying notes of the Otis Redding song. I don't know if you guys noticed that. Isn't that Threnity um, coming back in? Yeah, we'll get that later when he gets out of the car. But while, that as well. No, there. while we're in the car, we get a different cue, just very, like, It's the, it's the really horns. deep bass yeah. mm. cue, yeah. which has been in things before, but it was amped way the heck up this time. I got really excited about this particular scene and the sound because there's just, like... That bass was so intense and I swear it was like the most intense bass of the whole season, maybe on par with part three, but I'm not sure. But it was just like this incredibly like sludgy, suffocating, intense, horrible, heavy bass sound. Mm. Yeah. It was bass plus wind plus motor. And that, yeah. that's another ute. I really love utes, but, like, that's another great ute. Jess has a ute, by I the do. way, and she wears yeah. a lot of flannels. I just have to, like, put that <laughs> image in your mind. <laughs> so great. I used to drive a ute. Oh, they're the best. Yeah, they're fabulous. They're so good. <sighs> Get so much stuff moved around. Anyway, yeah. we also, the um, telephone poles were in Andy's vision in last episode as well. Yeah, that's right. I don't know if this is just going to be totally nerdy and really boring to other people, but like there's this idea of the orientational metaphor from this book by Lakoff and Johnson about called Metaphors We Live By, which is all about the way language is constructed through metaphor and they're all metaphors for the way our body is physically positioned in space. And there's this idea that good is up and bad is down and they're using this really like intense bass frequency as this sign of evil and then there's this high nice sound in the great northern which is making me think that place somehow is a 
some kind of good place. No, that's a really good idea. Yeah, I think that's totally right. That sound in the Great Northern is a fascinating one when it recurs because it does seem to turn up in really interesting times, like in, in part one when there's a, the ring appears in the circle when they're all you know standing in a circle mm. about to decide who you know Laura Palmer's killer is. And we get it again, um, not only in the Great Northern, but we get it when the coin is being flipped by red. Mm. So it's, it's this time where there's, where some, there's some sort of spiritual connection happening. Well, that's the confusing thing for me because I was like this good evil thing. Maybe that's a bit too simple because red is clearly yeah. not the mm. nice guy. But no. yeah, <laughs> some I don't know. Con- contact with lodges happening at these points, I think. I do think red's gotten kind of a bad rap because I remember you would like last time we were talking about red, you were saying, oh, you know, I think um, whatever Richard's done, that's more likely to be something red would do. But we haven't, all we've seen of Red is him being a magic motherfucker. And, <laughs> and seducing Shelley. And seducing Shelley. Or maybe not seducing, maybe. Well, but, yeah, like, sorry. he seemed just as pumped to be kissing Shelley too, and why wouldn't he be? She's beautiful. But And then we saw him at the start um, when Shelley was in with her, with her girls at the roadhouse and they, like, had a little moment across the bar. I don't know. I like Red. What? He's dealing drugs. Well... You know, this, dealing drugs can be complicated, but um, yeah. it, like it can be. But I also I don't know if he is like if he is a magic motherfucker. Maybe he's not just dealing drugs. Maybe he's there to like sort Richard out and make him feel like a dickhead. But then Richard, I don't know. Anyway, I kind of think that Red is not one way or the other. Okay. Do you think we'll see him again? Yes. Mm. I kind of like this idea because then it like brings my very simple analysis of sound to actually be correct, <laughs> which I was kind of thinking to myself, it's probably not. <laughs> so the sound in the Great Northern to me, it's really beautiful sound, but again to me it could be one or the other. I think it's a glass harmonica. That sounds- makes sense. Yeah. I don't know if it is for sure. I know it could be one or the other, but it's just mm-hmm. like these points that it seems to occur. It, it almost feels like it's telling us, yeah, like this person's okay. I think the last week's James in the basement in the yeah checking the furnaces and the unknown unknown door mm. and that sound is there makes me think. I mean James is it's clearly good, if a little bit he's you know changed since the accident. But um, <laughs> there's definitely good and evil in Twin Peaks, but I think the meat of everything and it's actually folding into what I'm starting to think about. Um, Bad Cooper, who I can't stop calling Booper. But anyway, where I think Lynch and Frost, as black and white as they can be sometimes, are very interested in the in-betweens and in the complicateds. And a lot of the time I feel like I've talked my ass off already, but like I feel like I can't even talk about the stuff in the episodes because they're so emotional and they're really conflicting emotions. They're not confusing, but they're can they there's they're complicated mm. and so i think this, mm. this is yeah i'm getting really excited about the way they're doing that nothing is simplistic which is actually part of why i've struggled a bit with some of the feminist analysis of that that's just like it's misogynistic because i'm like well actually it's really quite every situation where shit happens to women is really complicated and really interesting and actually representing a side of those experiences that don't usually get represented so I wanted to just reiterate that the complication isn't the fact that abuse is bad or that manipulation and covert abuse is abuse so that that stuff to me isn't complicated it's more that the representation of it or the representation representation of quote unquote shrill women 
or whatever. I don't buy that. I feel like any woman who is portrayed in a negative light in Twin Peaks has a reason to be that way. Absolutely, yeah. Well, speaking of complications, uh, Doppelcoop arrives at the convenience store and I think this is what the, uh, Ray was referring to as the Dutchman's mm. because this seems like the Flying Dutchman ship yes. never finds a port. It kind of moves around. I love the conceit of, oh, my God. Yeah, so. I love it. I'm not, but you feel free to disagree, but at the moment I'm reading this as being a convenience store that was caught within the bomb blast at White Sands and was and it's been like a hobo who was asleep who's now the woodsman is like a manifestation of this place of evil. So, it, which is weird because if that is true, then it's different to the convenience store that Leland, Leland, I can't remember how I meant to pronounce it. Leland. Thank, thank you. Leland mm. talks about um, as a child, the Robertsons lived next door above a convenience store. So that sounds like a fairly static, established convenience store, whereas this one seems to be moving around quite a bit. So, why the convenience store was in Pearl Lakes and fairly static versus? Wasn't it the convenience store? Well, he talks about how he met, how he recognised Bob. Mm. The, by the picture, it's like, I know this man, he lived above a convenience store. Robertson was their family name. Oh. As we see this, we get some Threnody bursting onto the soundtrack. I find this really interesting that this is quite a, you know, classic track that's used in horror films. But the way they're using it, to me, feels really different to how it's used in horror films. Mm. Like, it's not making me scared in the same way. It's It's more like telling me something about the story but it's not creating suspense in the same way that it does in like for instance the shining or something does anyone else feel that or is that just me mm, yeah for me it's just saying remember part eight mm, mm. yeah it's just it's like very cerebral as opposed to like emotional yeah it definitely produces a tension that i can cope with rather than a suspense which i don't want to live with mm. <laughs> Uh, so Double Coop gets out of the car and he's led up the stairs by the woodsman and once they get to the light they kind of flicker and disappear. Oh, can I just mention the crickets? Yes. Oh, my God. Lynch seems to really love using crickets. I mean, you could be watching it with no vision and, you know, this is night time. But the way the crickets rise up with the bass and the wind and the motor and then you've got the crickets and things just sort of hang in perfect balance and then, oh, yeah. Mm. It's just really good. Yeah, I find them like an interesting counterpoint to birdsong. Mm. I'm not sure if it's as polarised as that, but it does seem to be a very interesting deployment of these cricket sounds. And then we get these inter really interesting um, meshing of shots of the woods and the interior of the convenience, uh, which looks like Laura's painting, and he moves into a room and asks to see Philip Jeffries, and he's led by another woodsman through another dark room with in further intercutting shots of trees in the night time. That scene is why I'm so excited about the whole conception of the convenience store as a Flying Dutchman sort of situation. And it also made me think that this is a place that moves through space but doesn't move through time. The fact that they were moving through the, the trees, and we got that shot before as well. We like had these trees moving and they're moving with them and it just made me think this is – they are currently moving through space but they're not moving through time. They don't come to a different time. They come to exactly the same time. And then they go up a staircase, which is the one we've seen from the vortex when Gordon Cole looked mm. into it and had that small explosion, which I noticed for the first time is the exact mirror of the staircase that Philip Jeffries is standing on when he's at a hotel in Rio. Yes. Which is a white staircase with a black mark, burn mark on the wall mm. behind where he was standing. I've no idea what this means or whether there's some sort of interconnectedness between this hotel he was at in Rio where, he was, where Judy was. Mm -hmm. um, when the hotel clerk said, uh, referred to Judy as a young woman who, was, who had just been here. 
anyway, <laughs> hopefully we're going to find some answers to this. Uh, and then upstairs and then through a door and out into the courtyard of the motel in which Teresa Banks and Laura Palmer was in Fire Walk With Me. So I, know, I don't think anybody saw that coming. And crickets. And more crickets, yes. And no bass. But, but somehow the footsteps felt really heavy. They were backwards. Really? Yeah, well, it's a weird mix of backward sounds and backward speech and not backwards talk. Like, mm. Doppelkoop was speaking forwards, but then the, the proprietor of the motel was speaking backwards. And the mm. footsteps to me also sounded heavy and backward. It made me really start to wonder about the logistics of the lodges and whether, whether this is the Black Lodge, the above the convenience store is the Black Lodge or not. I'm... I'm very confused about what we're seeing. I feel like it might be the Black Lodge. Well, I don't think it is because Doppelkoop's trying to avoid the Black Lodge. He's trying not to get back in there. So oh, I think yeah. this is like a gateway yeah. of some sort. Of course. So but it just seems so strange for something like the Red Room to be outside. Yeah, th- yeah, this is strange. So this, that, I think that feels like it's in the real world, even though we were getting backwards talk. Mm. But then, then it also, because it was at night and it... If the sound changes, so we, I think we are supposed to think it's the real world, but I feel like that made me question everything we see after in yeah. terms of what is actually happening. I actually never even considered it was the real world. I just thought, like, wow, this, like, other, other dimension is way more complicated than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm still not sure whether it's meant to actually be the motel that we saw in Firewalk with Me or they're just using the same set because it has a particular feel about it, which yeah. is... One of decrepitude. Also, he goes to the door that's number eight. Yes, yes, he does. Mm. But before we get to that door, we still haven't talked about the brief flash that we got when he saw the first woodsman and who pulled yes. a switch on the and brought this surge of electricity on and then we saw the flash of the mask of the jumping man intercut mm. with a few frames of Sarah Palmer's face. Yes, yes. Which I think forces us to reassess what we thought we saw in the previous part. That d- didn't make me do that. Okay. I'm just still waiting. I don't know, but I'm an idiot. But. No. Oh, no. <laughs> so this mask is really interesting. So if we look at the way where it's been used, we first saw it in Firewalk with me when there was where Philip Jeffries walked into the into the Philadelphia mm-hmm. offices and we got this brief flash of him talking about being above a convenience store, where we saw the white mask mm-hmm. on the jumping man. Then we saw the monkey with the mask, and the monkey t- takes off the mask and says the word Judy. And so this is – because for a long time – And then the Tremont, um, the little boy – He's jumping up and down. He's got the mask too. In, yeah. in the forecourt of the motel, which we're currently in. The shape of the mask is what we see – is one of the things we see in Sarah Palmer's head when she takes her face off. Mm-hmm. We get yeah, that pointed, the pointy. pointed nose sort of image, which now we've got this con- connection between Sarah Palmer, so it feels like she could be uh, – like this is po- possibly her access to mm. either the Black Lodge or the spiritual realm. Because we don't know – we don't know Jumping Man's deal. No, for a long time, since he was wearing a red suit and was fairly short, we were like, oh, he's another manifestation of the arm, the ah. man from another place. But now, who knows? Ah. Mm. Can I also just point out something slightly unrelated? But did you notice that dude with the, like, stuff dripping out of his mouth and did it make you think about the, the dude oil. in the, mm. in the um, mm. cell as well? Yeah. yeah. Yes, it did. Maybe he's in a process of change. Oh, yeah. The, the, the drunk... I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> so then we get to room eight and we get a uh, bosomy woman, as referred to in the credits. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is, that the, is that the actual the, official yeah. title? So, what? Um, <laughs> Malachi Shrinan, who's a man playing, plays this role, a bosomy woman. Oh, my God. Which I thought was 
actually, I didn't think this. Um, friend of the show, Eloise Ross, uh, thought that this is a straight Norman Bates mention. Oh. Uh-huh. So, so it's a nod to Psycho. Mm. Yeah. Of like, I guess in a way, it's what would have happened if Norman Bates had been allowed to just do his own thing without society. He'd just be happily cross-dressing and running a motel. True. Quite possibly. Well, sadly, if as the case may be in this particular scenario. Do you have something to say, Haley? Your face looks like it does. No, I'm just going to continue making a face. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Good. So, bosomy woman unlocks the door. We go into a fairly sad-looking, dimly lit room, and then we get a cut to a <laughs> uh, like almost like a scene from a Razorhead or something. We get this black and white, this monochrome scene of a diving bell with a spout, uh, or the diving bell shape that we've seen twice before. Mm. Um, on the roof of the spaceship. I'm it's, not, a, it's a little like a percolator. It's a bit like a percolator. It's been referred to as a teapot across uh, the social medias. But did we also notice the curtain reveal yes. as well? Yeah, yeah, so like we're on a stage. It, yeah, it wasn't just like the wall faded out. We got, we got here is curtain reveal, which mm. I really liked and also got me excited. But I don't, I don't know when to talk about the Wizard of Oz. Anyway. <laughs> we can have a lot of chance, a lot of opportunities <laughs> to talk about the Wizard of Oz at some point. Uh, so then uh, we get a chat with Philip Jeffries, or the disembodied voice of Philip Jeffries being broadcast through this diving bell slash teapot machine. Oh, I just realised that I wonder if this motel is a place that's between existence and non-existence as we know it yeah. um, through the show. That sounds good. I'm into that. Continue. Yep. Um, because there's a, there's a familiar shape. There's also a familiar room situation that Philip Jeffries see, appears to be in. But then there's also, I know it's, you know, a flickering fluorescent light, which Lynch loves so much. Mm, yeah, yeah. But Bad Cooper is flickering in and out of vision and perhaps existence in this scene. And he also travels through electricity in and out of it in a way. And, yeah, made mm. me wonder if this outside situation was its own little dinghy in yeah. nothing or something. Philip Jeffries uh, says, oh, it's you. And Dobbleke assumes that he's speaking to Philip Jeffries. And he says, my God. why?" Did, then the first thing he wants to know is, why did you send Ray to kill me? Philip Jeffries sounds kind of confused and says, what? I called Ray. So did you send? So you did send him. Did you call me five days ago? So Doppelkoop is referring to the call that he got when he was in the motel to Safri kill Daria. Timeline the, help. Timeline Thanks. help. Thank you. Tick. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have your number, and so somebody we can conclude is calling is pretending to be Philip Jeffries and is tricking Doppelkoop. I also wonder: if, is this Tin Man another proxy of Jeffries? Possibly, yes. As far I, as we know, there's no. I mean. Just given with what we're looking at, there's no reason for us to know for sure this is Jeffrey's. No, and Jeffrey's really avoids giving any answers or any information mm. away in this. Not even any pronouns, too. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, well, just going back to the idea that Doppelkooper thinks that it's Jeffrey's who's being in contact with him, who else have we seen being in contact with Doppelkoop who may not actually be in cahoots with him or not and may actually be tricking him? Someone whose name begins with D and ends with I N. <laughs> we don't know that for sure. No, we don't know that for sure. No. You don't know for sure, Hayley. but I just want to float that little well, float that little boat I'm, down the stream. I've got a bit rocked, I'll have to say, mm. by what happens later. But I'm still being really stubborn. I'm like, we still know nothing for sure. So yeah. shut up. It's, that's true. And and the phone call that happened in the motel was with a, a male voice. So I think it could be. 
Mike, like the one-armed man's mm. real reality embodiment, which we haven't even seen yet. Um, or it potentially could be Albert or somebody on the inside tricking, like luring Doppelkoop. But I think whoever it is is probably in conjunction with, with Jeffries and or Diane. Mm. Mm. Anyway, so it was somebody else who called me, you know, and they asked a question. Of course, Jeffries ignores it. We used to talk. And then we get a flashback to this the, the Bowie firewalk with me scene, which uh, is used as a proof that this is a Cooper who has these memories. Although whether you're whether you consider Doppel Cooper true Cooper or Dougie true Cooper is still a point of contention. The fact that he still keeps asking who Judy is makes me think that yeah, any facsimiles of the original Cooper has his memories, but doesn't exactly have context and doesn't exactly know who everyone is. Yeah, yeah. Did Cooper know who Judy was? No. Oh. Well, this is the thing. Uh, what? Um, no, it doesn't seem so because so you are Cooper is like the next thing, and then why didn't you want to talk about Judy? That becomes the subject of the conversation because it's almost as if Jeffries can read his mind, so he knows when he's talking about the FBI office in Philadelphia in 1989. They're, they're t- talking about the conversation about we're not going to talk about Judy, which yeah. is still seems to be um, something he wants to know. So this is the, one of the first times we've seen Doppel Cooper be kind of uncertain or shook or and not angry. getting what he wants. Yeah, yeah, he was he was very angry, but not in a way like he sort of had this cool sharky anger happening Mm. but this is he's actually getting very cross and really demanding who is judy but um that that display of emotion also made me start to wonder if indeed this is cooper Mm -hmm. not booper not doppelcoop but it is actually cooper it's his bad side or his dark side amplified but also the mechanics of this whole scene made me think that he's Dorothy and he's gone to a visit of a two-for-one Wizard of Oz special (laughs) reference of the Tin Man and the Man Behind the Curtain and the first time Dorothy meets the so-called Wizard of Oz and gets turned back and then has to come back to meet the actual... Mm, feeble mm-hmm. man behind the curtain, which would actually make heaps of sense if that was if that was Mike. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. All right. So in this context, would you say Dougie has a heart but no brain, and and Doppelcoop has the brain but no heart? Um, I actually thought that we saw last week someone get a brain, someone who also looks a bit like a scarecrow and has a weirdly stuffed belly, like <laughs> scarecrows sometimes have, <laughs> and I think. Last, I yeah, I think like Thembi was saying this episode, and Nanny was saying this episode's all about heart. I thought last week's episode was all about brains, and info dumps, and storytelling, and yeah, we saw that we saw Andy get a brain. Yeah. Okay. Can I also just say this weird thing occurred to me just during that scene? I was just like, oh, so Diane's Judy. It was just like my brain thought that that was exactly the truth. I don't. Has anybody else had this thought or was this just some weird thing in my brain? I've seen other people have it online. Really? Yeah, I've seen people go, is Diane Judy? But I am still wondering if it's Garland, Judy Garland Briggs. Mm. I checked and checked. But he said it was a woman. Yeah, but (laughs) we don't know anything. Well, yeah, this is a deleted scene. Well, originally Judy was written to be Josie's sister Mm. in a discarded script. But then we don't even know if Annie exists in this version. No, she's only been referred to as the girl that came out with Cooper. I don't know. Like, I don't know. There's so many tricksy things going on with inconsistencies that I feel like Judy really could be anybody. And 
I made sure to watch and rewatch Jeffrey's talking about Judy and Cooper Booper talking about Judy, and none of them at any time say she or her. It's always just saying Judy. There's mm. no pronoun at all. Mm. I think it was just because Cooper's so, like, he really wants to know, and I feel like that's because maybe he's communicating with Judy and needs to understand who he's communicating with. Yeah, so it turns out to be somebody that he's known, and Philip Jeffrey says, why don't you ask Judy yourself, let me write it down for you, and spits out the first few numbers of the coordinates that we saw on Ruth's arm, mm -hmm. which have been shown to be somewhere right next to Twin Peaks. So we can assume that Ju whoever Judy is is currently in Twin Peaks. Do you think, or can we assume that whatever's in Twin Peaks, Judy is responsible for? Or part um, of, or like the, the you know, heart of or something. Well, it, well Judy is somebody she, he can ask, according to Philip Jeffries. So it mm. seems that somebody you can communicate with. So I would think that would be a person, although there is one person in, in Twin Peaks who is desperately trying to communicate and who can't and also has, has a connection with monkeys. Mm. So I think Nido may be tied in at some point either judy is inside her or she's some sort of cipher for her or there's some some sort of way that she'll turn out to be really important anyway we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves so um doppelkoop is sent out via a, a rotary telephone into a phone booth out the front of the the convenience store and he turns out to be at the end of a gun held by richard or well, first of all we get a nice stuttering sort of thing where he returns to reality with some frame drops and this sort of stuff which is also a nice disconcerting thing and then Richard turns up, who recognises him from a picture in his fancy FBI suit. My mum had it. Who's your mum? <sighs> Don't worry. I've already rationalised it so Booper is not his father. <laughs> Why didn't he kill him, though, as soon as he found out who his mother was, though? I know. Yeah. Yeah. But I just, you know, I was thinking, oh, Richard's just followed him because he thinks that he's FBI and he sees some kind of weird psychopathic opportunity to go and follow him or something. Mm. And maybe maybe Bad Cooper also saw an opportunity and that's why he didn't kill him. Look. Think positive. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to feel like the worst theory is not about to be proven true, but unfortunately that is not... That's not where I am right now. Yeah. Mm, I also think that regardless of whether they're related or not, Richard could serve quite be quite useful to Doppelcoop mm. as a way to get into Twin Peaks or a way to yes. his knowledge. I think would be very useful to right now since this is he knows this is where he's got to go to these yes particular coordinates. Mm -hmm. So he's found out that he's linked to Twin Peaks, and then he's like, "All right, come along, dickhead." And then we get Richard being really pathetic. Again. Yeah, and once somebody, once somebody's given the requisite information to Doppelgroup, they're dispatched with pretty quickly. Mm. So anyway, we still don't know, but we do see him text the word Vegas, presumably to Diane. So whether this is a reminder to following up on the previous text message or whether this is the actual text message we saw Diane get. Well, I know that David Lynch isn't – it doesn't seem to be that across mobile phone technology, but I have to say that when I've seen the side-by-side -side, Diane's phone and Bad Cooper's phone – her iPhone send is blue, which means she's talking to someone also on an iPhone, which oh. Cooper is not. Mm. Bam. Ba, ba, ba. <laughs> I just blew this case wide open. It's sold. <laughs> Let's go home. That's fantastic. Interesting. Very. Uh, I'm being really stubborn. <laughs> uh, so they drive away in a really big black ute and the convenience store disappears in a cloud of static and smoke. 
And it also moves through time as it's disappearing. I mean, space, not time. Like the TARDIS. No, not time. Not time, not just time. space. Oh, sorry, I, I yeah. made a goof. It's moving through space as it's disappearing. The trees in the background keep oh, yes. changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so also, just before we leave Philip Jeffries, uh, my theory is that inside this diving bell slash teapot thing, he is suspended as as a gas because the spirit, all the spirits in the Black Lodge have ascended from air, according to the, the man from another place, In um, when we get a bit of lore about the convenience store. So we've ascended from air. Oh, sorry, from pure air we have descended. So this is a way of encapsulating him. It's not necessarily trapped, but he's sort of contained in a way, if, we, if we're assuming that Philip Jeffries is the resident. Because he, he seems, I don't think he's being totally corrupted by the Black Lodge. I'm not entirely sure that he is. Mm. I think he can move between them. He's like attained this fantastic, you know, power, sort of wizard-like sort of ability to move between them. So I think he can occupy the diving bell-shaped thing here, or he can occupy the one in the in the White Lodge with Senorita Dido and the Fireman. Interesting. Just a theory. I also, I mean, that kind of makes sense with what I picked up on, which was that Jeffries doesn't actually seem to be where he shows himself being, or where he says he was. He told Ray that he was at the Dutchman's, but I don't. He, think he's actually there Mm, mm -hmm. there was i mean he he was revealed via some kind of conduit place of non-existence slash existence in between so i don't know i really like the idea that jeffries is just really messing with cooper's head yeah yeah. Mm. so we leave there with another drone shot of the wilderness which tells us we're staying in twin peaks and the camera tracks through some more rich foliage and it settles on Mark Frost walking a dog. (laughs) What a beautiful sight. Someone has a pet in Twin Peaks. Yes, a Boston Terrier. Oh, well spotted. Thank you for that. Such a cutie. I'm always ready for pointing out what that dog is. What's that dog? I know. Great. (laughs) I also really like the idea that David Lynch doesn't conceive of pets being anywhere in his shows because he just doesn't think about pets and... Maybe I'd have an idea that Mark Ross was like, no, he should be walking a dog. Yeah. <laughs> but all, and also thank you, Mark Ross, for keeping that little pooch safe. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very important. Thank you, Cyril Pons, who <laughs> seems to have fallen on hard times as one successful news reporter for the local local news services. Why? He's just rugging up to walk no, in a cold he's living in a trailer park and I always thought, you yeah. know... But this is a nice little mini commentary on where journalism has gone mm. in the preceding 26 years. Anyway. I wouldn't mind living in Harry Dean Stanton's trailer park. I wouldn't like living next door to Stephen and Becky. No, not living next door to them. Yeah. Mm. Somewhere somewhere else <laughs> so within the park. <laughs> just near being near Harry Dean would be enough for Oh, it'd just be so bolstering for your soul yeah, every imagine day. just opening your window and hearing his songs drift oh, in on the oh, evening breeze. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Stephen and Gerson Hay would have other things besides songs to think about, and they're huddled, huddled at a foot of a moss-covered tree. And uh, Stephen is clearly very agitated, coming down from some sort of bad trip or drug withdrawal, or he's getting over some sort of horrific thing that he's just done or been involved in. Um, again, the, the dialogue here, I didn't catch the first time. I had to watch it again with subtitles on to be able to work out what they were saying, and even then it didn't really make much more sense. Yeah, I think also I saw someone outlining what the subtitles said and there was a lot of talks about cunts and stuff, but I actually heard him saying, why are you crying? Like, you, I heard really different things. Mm. So I'm not sure the subtitles are even to be trusted in this yes, instance. Yes, yeah, true. There's a lot of garbled mumbling and I did do it, no, she did it, and him taking responsibility for something. So... 
I think he's talking about Becky. There's um, in previous things we've seen Stephen get extremely agitated about something that she's done or he's done, and they haven't really been specific about it yet. But it's certainly something that is stressing him out a lot, and he's making him talk a bunch of nonsense like "I will go up, I'll be with the rhinoceros," or "lightning in a bottle," or "turn turquoise." Mm. So it seems like some sort of bad he's sparkle trip. He's on drugs, yeah. and worse, he's got a gun. Mm. His sparkle shit's not great, guys. No, it's and like it's super meth. Meth is bad enough on itself. Yeah. yeah. And then we even get like the inverse bad trip shot mm. of Gersten's face at the end of the scene looking up like Becky did in that really like euphoric, kind of euphoric scene. beautiful mm. scene. Yeah. And it's, yeah, very yeah. So how do you, scathing. Yeah, how do you mm. feel, go feeling about Stephen and Gersten? Do you feel like this is a bit like a, a, it's a tactile story that's not really going anywhere? I don't know about that, but does anybody else just find him so repulsive? Yes. Like, I just felt sick the whole time he was on screen. And in this particular scene, like, there was that so much reverb in all the musical cues and stuff. And, and the two of them are so close and their form of intimacy is, to me, really disgusting. And there was this kind of interesting juxtaposition of their closeness and then the musical cues is like you know reverb is signifies these huge spaces but a very unreal space in this particular and the clashing colors of the moss and their clothes had such garish color yeah. very yeah. red it's, yeah, they're it was, both even redheads it was almost like something out of atomic blonde i don't know if you've seen that but that's got mm. some pretty vibrant colors yeah. going on he really is the epitome of the sort of guy who would never get anyone to go out with him if he didn't have a ready stream of drugs available. And a really nice car. I'm sorry, I'm still he a did. fan of his car. I know <laughs> other people aren't. I prefer Utes, but, you know, look at, <laughs> look at me. I'm a high school graduate. What was with that? It's so hot. <laughs> oh, my God. I actually I feel physically ill right now. It makes me so sick. I was just yeah. so sick that whole scene. I just, mm. ugh. Yeah, and, the, and the, the close breathing on her face, I was like, he oh. hasn't brushed his teeth in days. Oh. No. Yeah. Such good casting, though. Yeah, yeah, he was mm. He's also really good in Get Out. Mm. Uh, Cyril Pons is walking the dog and interrupts. Gerson runs around the other side of the tree, and we hear a gunshot, and we can presume, I think, that Stephen's committed suicide. She grabs her head and looks up into the sky in a way that I look, I took to be at the end of a conversation about going up and going to places, maybe a vortex. Or yeah, something. Just, I, the, just that shot was very similar. I thought we were about to see something like that happen too, but then it, it, it just also mirrored the Becky looking up scene. Mm, mm. Yeah. Um, but then you were saying something about looking up like that has been... Was that? Oh, just like when you look up like that, that's how you hypnotise yourself. But I wasn't even thinking about it in relation to that. But, yeah, I definitely thought about it with Andy looking up and getting all that information. Mm. Mm, yeah. Is Becky dead? Yes, we don't know. Well, this is a thing. I mean, this is quite possible. From the description, it sounded like she had maybe been messing with his sparkle, like ah. putting some sort of something bad in it. Yeah. Because it does sound like, you know, she's done something bad and then he maybe has killed her. Because at the end of this scene, we see Cyril Pons going back to talk to Harry Dean and pointing out their particular trailer. And that shot of their trailer was so Mulholland Drive. And it had very ominous music that went yeah. boom when we saw a shot of it. Yeah. Is Becky dead? And is even Stephen dead? Like, we just heard a gunshot, yeah. you know, and we just assume from Gersten's face that she assumes that he's killed himself, but yeah, is that what's actually happened, you know? 
We don't know. Tune no. in next week. Yeah, this is interesting because for me at the beginning of that scene, it was just like I had such a strong sense of disorientation of time. I was, I was just like, I don't know when the fuck this is happening. Mm. And it really, yeah, it really brought up that feeling of like when you've been gaslit and that complete perceptual disorientation and the the way that when you experience trauma and abuse, particularly like long extended abuse as opposed to like a, a single kind of incident there just becomes this complete muddling of time and well time and space actually which they're representing really well which I think is part of why this guy just makes me feel so sick because yeah. he, he encapsulates a lot of those things, yeah. I can't remember. Does anyone remember where we go from here? I've got the Roadhouse next. But we do. We do? We go straight to the Roadhouse? We get, we get the Roadhouse playlist. Oh, talking about <laughs> juxtaposition of time. We're going from this early morning dog walking guy to the suddenly evening show in the Roadhouse. <gasps> anyway. And the most extreme tonal shift. I'm fully prepared to marry that MC. Oh, JR Star. Yeah. Oh, <gasps> oh, and the song as well. Oh, my God. Yes, which opens with the line, new shoes. <laughs> Clonk. Here we go. Um, and also they seem a very excitable crowd. So it's like, I mean, it's amazing. Easily entertained. Well, JR Star, I think, has a gift. I just love seeing what he gets excited about too. Like how excited he was about Lissy, who yeah. I was like, I'd be excited about that too. That was great. And then he's so excited about ZZ Top. And then he pushes a big paper arrow past 10 on a volume meter and people go nuts. <laughs> who knew it was that easy to excite a crowd in Twin Peaks? Uh, and then James and Freddie, beer is in hand, walk over to Chuck, Renee, Skipper and Skipper's girlfriend, whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, and they're all sitting in a booth. And James comes over and says, it's good to see you, Renee, in a fairly, what seems like an ill-advised move, unless you're deliberately trying to start something and trying to get into the Twin Peaks Sheriff's jail cell. This is thought has only just struck me, but it seems like a, um, a very autistic spectrum move because it was completely in the wrong spot of conversation. <laughs> I know it's not possible that James is suddenly autistic because of a motorcycle accident <clears throat> that had that tone of polite inappropriateness and being misunderstood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was interesting, but I also thought it's a, it was a perfect move if you wanted to be look really, really cool in the eyes of Renee and start a fight that, in, that gets you put in a cell where you know that you need to be because you've seen something in the boiler room. Because we just want to know what happened when he saw that. And I'm thinking this is a really deliberate move to get Freddy there because Nido really needs protection, right? She's one of the most vulnerable characters we've ever seen. We've ever seen. We need one punch man. We need one punch man, yeah. Um, that seems way too intelligent for James, I'm sorry. Mm. He doesn't strike me as that... Unless he's had it hit, unless he's been given some brains. Like Andy. But he also just... I don't know. I just got really social inept mm, from okay. that. Maybe you're underestimating James. Possibly. I think everybody's been underestimating James for years. <laughs> he was always cool. He was always cool. <laughs> yeah. So then we get a fight scene between Chuck who says, oh, you've got a death wish, and then he does this amazing, like really quite hefty punches to James's face that seem to have no impact when James stands up after Freddie turns up and hospitalises him with one punch. James did have a really good block, though. Did he? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah he like did. Like, when yeah, you can see him, he's got mm. his fists above his face, so maybe that he was just pummeling his fists. What did you make of the punch moment which took the needle off the record? I loved Metaphorically, it. because I think they're just, just an MP3 player. That is such a cheesy, cheap trick. I loved it. I loved like and but also just even the editing on the punch, like it was nothing. Oh. It was I think it was the sound of a gunshot mixed in. Yeah. Or there's something like a really loud bang when the punch mm -hmm. landed. Oh. 
Uh, yeah, it was an, anyway, it's another interesting example of songs being interrupted for dramatic purposes in this episode. Yeah, and this is a really nerdy tangent, but I just am starting to really wonder if Mark Frost or David Lynch are actually one of them is a huge anime fan because we've got One Punch Man. I know that there's other things, but he's literally One Punch Man. He's like an unassuming. One Punch Man is a is an anime and manga about this really boring kind of guy who can kill anything with one punch and he sort of just stumbles around and saves things and is like, meh, oh well. And, I don't know, Freddy seems quite similar. Mm. Well, there's another animation Easter egg hidden in the last scene as well, which we will get to. Oh, okay. So maybe I would give credence to this uh, theory. Yeah, and then there was also something in Sarah's unface with the smile that made me think of the first homunculus from... Full Metal Alchemist. Yes. So, yes. like, I'm a huge nerd, but anyway, hmm. I reckon one of them are too. Right, okay. Oh, God, his eyes don't look right, mm. says James. And then later at the sheriff's station, James and Freddie are led to cells seven and eight, respectively. Freddie was in eight. Yes. Very important. Uh, what, like, I assume. Can I don't explain the eight thing to me? Yeah, no, I don't actually pay attention to the numbers. I just go, oh, yes, whenever anyone mentions them. Yeah. <laughs> Let's test this. 4.30. Oh, we got a different one to that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just, it seems to me that eight is otherworldly, like Mauve. Um, yeah, so Chad, Nido, and the town drunk are still there, which I think makes, with these two, I think we've never seen this many people in these cells before. I, mean, I don't think they've ever been used to this degree. I think there's more, though, as well, since we last saw them. Yeah. I only ever remember there being, like, four cells, so... But we know we all know that crime is, is terrible in Twin Peaks. It's rampant. Mm. Mm. Yes. Um, so And then uh, James seems very surprised to see Nido, who's motioning as if she's moving through another world with her arms out in front of her, or like she's holding or feeling something. She looks like she's holding a ball. Mm. Yeah, like an orb or something. Mm. Mm. Or like feeling out, feeling out in mm. some way. And she's making her monkey slash bird noises again, mm-hmm. which uh, drunk guy is imitating. And uh, James seems really transfixed. So I think it's really good that Freddy is there now, since we know yeah. that Nido is in danger at some point, and I don't think the woodsmen have much concern for bars of cell, cell bars. So to have Freddy there I think is a really good thing. Mm. He could punch his way out of the, that cell. We will, yeah. Well, and we'll hear more about Freddy in our interview after our chat about part 15, um, which you can all look forward to. And then we move to Las Vegas. to uh, FBI Special Agent Randall Headley, where Wilson is again being chastised for being, like, quite a... You know, a decent admin, like I would have thought, but making a terrible mistake here. Yeah. Kids up! Your, your standards for admin are extremely low, Andy. <laughs> he shouted him for no reason last time, and this time, you know, Wilson went out and got Dougie Jones and his wife and kids. Kids! I love Randall. Well, at least they're onto it. At least, like, you know, so far a lot of things have just been left by the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department, but at least down here stuff's getting done even if it's the wrong stuff. I want Randall to yell at me. And it's not like like the Fuscos who (laughs) are actively arseholes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we open a door, a small toddler is screaming and then the door gets closed (laughs) and Wilson is his face screwed up in pain where he knows he's in trouble again and he's going to get a shouting. We get Wilson! (laughs) (laughs) Also in Vegas, we stop to say goodbye to Mr. Todd and his assistant, Roger, who are quickly dispatched by Chantal. Blown away! <laughs> Before, they've just realised that Anthony Sinclair hasn't been in touch and Chantal 
just leaves leaves with the lines one down one to go yeah french fries extra ketchup this scene like it's a really good example of how david lynch with most of his work writes sound as an important part of the narrative so it's not like sound is just laid on top of the visual action but it it's always like plays a key point you know what i'm saying yeah no no it's interesting because the sounds in this was really good but then the the special effects were really strange <laughs> like particularly when we get the sound slightly after we see the vision of uh, Mr. Todd's head being shot. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it was an interesting one. Mm. And then we get another brief shot with Chantal and Hutch in the car afterwards oh. where they talk about the terrible states of the nation and fast food. They're monsters, but I love yeah, them. Yeah, I really like their relationship. It's so functional. Mm. It's Yeah, it's like very um, heartwarming, their relationship, mm. which is really interesting considering they're both pretty much psychopaths. Mm. It's kind of interesting because it ties back to what Nadine, you know, the very start of the episode was this really heartwarming opening and widening of the heart and and this um, Nadine says what her definition of what love is and then when we got to this scene I was like, so what is love to a psychopath? Yeah. Because <clears throat> they do seem to genuinely love each other, mm. which psychopaths are apparently not capable of actual love. I'm not entirely sure I agree with that. Okay. I don't know if they are psychopaths. They, I think they might, just like Mr. Todd said, have been brainwashed in a way or forced to act and they're just really, really good at what they do. You think that you would get uh, that level of joy out of torturing somebody? Well, she somebody? talks about it. We're getting a lot of like build-up to this idea that she's going to torture somebody. Mm. But it, I don't know. It was very – that whole scene was really strange and really lovely and a really great moment of – political commentary that was immediately cut off by Chantal saying, yeah, but, you know, the fun the fun ends for me when I kill someone. Like, <laughs> yeah. And mm. then just, like, having a nice look at the the night sky together. The, the, the one star or possibly Mars. Mars. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then we cut from Mars to a house with a red door. Dun, dun, dun. Inside the Jones household, Dougie is sitting at a table and Janie is bringing him a slice of chocolate cake. And she's talking about how wonderful everything is at the moment. He repeats the last word she says as per his M.O. And he moves to salt and pepper shakers, which are shaped very interestingly. Yes, very familiar. Yes, very bell-ish, like mm. a diving bell. And I particularly like when, when I was watching and Dougie actually reached out to do something for himself. Yes. Biz and I both gasped. Yeah. And we're just okay. like, this is new. This is very new. Mm. Yeah. He was, yeah. He was starting mm. to actually have small independent thoughts and making choices. And he pushes them apart in this way that makes you think, okay, separation, so he's he's not there yet. But mm. after the, on the third try of pressing buttons on a remote control, he pulls up David Lynch's favourite movie of all time, Sunset Boulevard, at a very key moment. <gasps> <laughs> I'm pretty sure of all the theories going around out there, like what was going to wake him up, no one mentioned Sunset Boulevard. Oh. Um, Which is a shame because it's an excellent movie and I would want to be revived from it with mm. it, Yeah, that's to be a, yeah. honest. I could think of a lot of worse things. Just have Gloria Swanson just bring me back to life. <laughs> and what was Gloria Swanson most notable for? Pop quiz that is hugely relevant to this situation. Well, she was for many, many things. I can't narrow it down, Andy. Okay. Well, one of the things she did really well was transition from silent to talkies. Didn't no, Gloria wasn't... Swanson, well, she didn't really. The thing about Gloria Swanson was, oh, you've just poked my mm, oh no, please educate me. knowledge. Um, the thing about Gloria Swanson was she kind of vaguely tried to do the the transfer to, to sound, but by this point Gloria Swanson was very wealthy 
Like she was one of the silent film stars who actually managed her finances very, very well. So she never really, she never really had to come back to cinema, but she'd always decide to do it just periodically because she, she kept being like famous and a known entity and she did a lot of other things. She was very um, renowned for her diet and her beauty regimes, which when you watch Sunset Boulevard and you realise that she was in her actual 50s and you're just like, oh my God, this woman just looks like, she just looks astounding. And she looked like that for the rest of her life. Like I totally recommend looking up her bonkers food and exercise and beauty regimens because it's a lot, but it seemed to work for her. Um, So so, she she didn't transition. No, she didn't really transition. Like she definitely did things like theatre and she popped up in films, you know, all through her career, but there was even the thing of, you know, um, she took Sunset Boulevard as, uh, you know, she took it as a signal and I think a lot of the media at the time took it as a signal that this was her comeback and she was going to have a glorious second wind of her career and then it never really happened. Okay. Um, so the scene we get is um, goodbye, Norma. We'll see what they can do. I'm not worried. Everything will be fine. The old team together again. Nothing can stop us. Get Gordon Cole. Mm. And... This um, changes Dougie's face and is another beautiful example of Kyle MacLachlan doing saying nothing but then acting brilliantly. Mm. Um, we get the sound of electricity suddenly seeps mm. into this scene, which is really cool. And Dougie Dougie focuses on the PowerPoint, and then focuses very intently on it, and then sticks uh, the wrong end of a fork or tries to stick the wrong end of the fork into it. Then sticks the right end of the fork. And what do you think is going to happen next? We get a screaming Janie, we get the, the lights going off, and we get a huge power surge of electricity into Dougie. I think this is. I think we've just seen a return of sorts of Cooper mm-hmm. actually screaming at this point and just going, oh, my God, oh, my God, and, like, <laughs> waking my dog up to be like, Edie, what is he going to do? <laughs> but I think it's also important to note that in parts 3 and 15 we've had Cooper entering electricity points in 3 and 15 and his key was his room number was 315 Mm, mm -hmm. and so it seems I've always kind of wondered if part 15 is when Cooper will be quote unquote back yeah which is interesting because it was only meant to be nine (laughs) so (laughs) then we get the 315 at the beginning in part three with you know when when he's with Nido remember this is why I still think and yeah it was yeah the numbers there were 315 and I just think Lynch and Frost all along wanted more Mm. And didn't probably even write it properly when they had <laughs> when they had the nine episodes. I just think they were like, no, we're going to need more. I got pretty sad in this scene. I, I was seeing it more as like death of Dougie, I think. And I was getting all like, I've, it definitely shifted me into like grief mode. And Yeah, yeah what's going to happen with Janie and Sunny Jim? Mm. Yeah, and I, like, I, you know, I did think, oh, okay, so this is like the death of Dougie, which like will explain to them why this man has disappeared from their life so it'll it'll make sense to them it won't be this bizarre guy just gets taken away sort of thing because they were so insistent that on calling Cooper Cooper in that like earlier part Mm -hmm. that it just kept making me wonder so I feel like we're getting told so bad Cooper is Cooper like what you were saying before so now like is there going to be some kind of like spiritual meeting of the two within the one body or like yeah I mean I have no idea what's going to happen but I think it's really interesting and particularly because Margaret then says the thing about death Mm. as as change not an end but um 
Yeah, yeah. skipping ahead yeah. a little bit. I, I think the idea of the two Coopers coming together is very intriguing because we, we've kind of interpreted the man from the other place as the two Coopers can't exist together and one of them has to die. But what if it's actually the two Coopers actually have to become one? Mm. Yeah, which is sort of adds to that complexity of like good and evil that Jess was talking about earlier where it's they're not presenting it as like, yeah, there's the good side and the bad side, which is what it seemed like it was set up to be. Mm. Now it's sort of like, well, how do these two things exist together, which mm. they like they do in all of us and yeah I don't know I'm not sure where they're going with it but it's kind of pretty interesting and exciting to me it needs to be like the double R balanced mm. and golden oh right yeah but how is the double R balanced just in colour terms <laughs> it's got green and red and yeah and it's earthy it's balanced did either of you notice a cha- a physical change um, in uh, Doppelcoop in the previous um, when we last saw him and the change in Dougie do you, do you mean just like just the way they're holding themselves? Yeah, and the, and the yeah, face. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. They, they felt really different this episode for some reason and it did feel like they're starting to meet somewhere. Um, mm. Yeah, I feel like the colour or the pallor or the makeup is slightly different or something like this. Mm. Yeah. I also think it's interesting that we have two sequences in this episode that ends with the character going into a situation which you assume the outcome is death but you don't see it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Almost three, actually, when you think about well, it. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. There is a lot of, and we're about to go to another scene of somebody mm-hmm. dying off screen. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of this happening. And the only shot we actually, the only death we actually see is Mr. Todd. We see um, Roger dying off screen, Margaret. Um, possibly possibly Stephen and possibly Doggy. Yeah. What do you think the chances are of the next time we see Cooper, it's the very first time we saw him in part one? Do you think that it's possible that we would have him? Very. Really? You think we're going to get that re- replay? Why? Of... Why well, you just made me think that that? Yes. Yeah, and then he's given a mission of sorts by the firemen to focus on Richard and Linda, and then he's going to go and appear in the woods in Jack Rabbit's palace or something like that. Yes. Hmm, that's pretty good. I think that would that would be a, that would be a return of sorts. True to the Chat title. my trousers. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm also I'm wondering about the return thing as being the last episode with the home, but maybe I'm skipping ahead to yet. Snar should just stop. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we go to log the. We get a call from Margaret Lanterman um, to Hawk, put through by Lucy, and we get the title of the episode. Sorry, the part. Hawk, I'm dying. It's time. There's been some fear in letting go. Remember what I told you. I can't say more over the phone. You know what I mean from our talks when we were able to speak face to face. Watch for the one, the one that I told you about, the one under the moon on Blue Pine Mountain. My log is turning gold. The wind is moaning. I'm dying. Good night, Hawk. <laughs> Sorry, I'm crying again. You're just going to have to... Sorry. No. Yeah, talk around me for a bit, please. Okay, well, this is a really moving and beautiful part, I thought, since we've already had one episode dedicated to Catherine Coulson. This, this one is dedicated to Margaret Lanterman, who... Lynch has often referred to as being as the character is you know so closely tied in with her. It's beautifully put. The pacing is really interesting. The fact that Hawk doesn't respond emotionally; he's just impassive, listening. He knows you know what needs to be done in the presence. In presence is what he can give, and that's what he gives really beautifully. I think. As per Hawk's living map, she seems to be talking rather than talking about going to meet her husband who died on their wedding night. The lumberjack. She's talking about what she can do for the communities. She has this information she needs to pass on. But in a way, you know, she says, "I can't say more over the phone," which makes me think she's 
talked about the one being Laura before, but in this situation, I don't know if it's capital T, capital O. I think it's more the one that's just signified on his living map, which I think means she's talking about the experiment, who a lot of people refer to as the mother. She sees this as like the vital thing that she has to do before she passes. And also this makes the scene that we saw with Hawk talking to her on the phone when he discovers the waiting room from back from part three. This can't, can no longer be a flash forward anymore because yes. we were all wondering when we were going to see this because this is like yet another situation like James in the boiler room where we see somebody, you know, find discover some place of spiritual significance like Andy's return from the White Lodge. In all of these three things, nobody ever refers to them again. So it's either they don't remember them or they, we haven't come to a situation where they need to talk about this information yet. And so then Hawk, after this, Hawk breaks the news to the rest of the station in another really beautiful scene where Truman is looking at, at a pictures of fish mm-hmm. on his laptop. I didn't notice that. Um, and we get a really beautiful battle of Menti cue, which I think was the same one from when yeah. the kid was hit by the truck. Oh, yeah. I, I was thinking it sounded like the golden orb. Oh, music. yes, yes, quite possibly could be. Yeah. It was actually watching this episode a couple of times and hearing Margaret say, my log is turning gold, that made me start really paying attention to gold. Every time I've watched it and every time I think about it, I cannot believe the... I don't even know what the word is for it, but just the fact that Lynch and Catherine Coulson delivered this performance together and that... Coulson was able to talk so frankly about death when she was actually dying and Mm. just is so beautiful and amazing and just every time I've watched it I've gotten choked up and yeah it's an amazing scene yeah I know something floating around on Twitter I think where someone said they were like um Lynch was able to cap off Catherine Coulson's career in such a beautiful way within the character that she was most famous for and do it in a way that not even the biggest of stars get on screen. Like I was thinking the closest to this was David Bowie's last album. Exactly, yeah, same. Just just the perfect goodbye. Mm. Yeah, it was beautiful. So do you think we'll see a funeral? No, I no. think we saw it. Yeah. Mm. I feel like I've got a cold black heart over here because I was, like, not getting so moved by the whole thing and I was just more thinking about everything she was saying in terms of, like, what had just happened to Dougie Coop and feeling like it was full of these kind of messages for us to consider and understand what is about to happen. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's definitely multiple levels going on in the messages oh, yeah. that she's giving and yeah. it's extremely important for the plot, I think, what, mm. what she's actually saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it kind of gives us this chance to just meditate on what grief is and, mm. yeah. Mm. Was anyone else bothered by how small the pictures of fish were on Truman's laptop? Yes. Come on, where, man. Where is he viewing them Go from? Go full screen. <laughs> I think it was his background picture. Oh, no, he was clicking through them. There were multiple fish. <laughs> but on um on like from another from the other angle, so towards where Hawk enters, I thought I could see icons on the side, and so oh. I was thinking oh, that that's really? his laptop. That's even more. But... That's even sadder. <laughs> You can't find yourself a big trout to put on your background. You know, when you've got one of those pictures that you really want as your background, but you just can't find one that's yeah. the 
big enough pixel size. Yeah. <laughs> I've got at the moment with my Bobby Bobby Briggs fan art, I've had to make it pretty small. Excuse so. me? <laughs> You've got to see it. I need to see this. I think we all need to see this. Can we, it's can it's you the moment that, that he can... proposes to me, just so you all know. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Oh, I did. Li- yeah, I did like how he was just kind of stolid in this scene as well. And whereas Andy knew exactly he needed to put his hands on Lucy's shoulder, and Lucy touches wood. As soon as I, I loved she gets her. Moves. Like it, it, it actually broke me even more. Lucy's beautifully stoic crying. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. it's also the like her saying that the log lady's dead as though like how could that ever possibly happen? But mm. also really driving home who this woman was to the town and you know she was a weird weird old lady in the Mm. cabin but Mm. but she also got so respected at the same time it's because she knew the town's law you know she knew it better than anyone else this is what i love about small towns is like you can be a weirdo and you can be accepted it's beautiful Mm -hmm. in fact the weirdos end up the best out of anybody in twin peaks really uh so then we got the beautiful shot of hawk looking down um, superimposed over the top of these beautiful trees moving um, and another battlementy cue and then a shot of Margaret's cabin with the lights dimming as a sort of final send-off, visual send-off, I suppose. Uh, and then we go to another strange place, which is Audrey and Charlie who are talking and they're about to leave, go to the roadhouse, it would seem. Uh, there's a lot of talk about putting on coats and then Audrey finds everything that Charlie does to be extremely irritating. They're stuck on the, th- they're stuck on the threshold. The threshold. Mm. This is a very key term, I think. And then she says more stuff about shifting identities. It's impossible. I see it right before my eyes, but I never really saw it before. It's you, Charlie. I just never really saw you before the way I'm seeing you now. Like I'm meeting a different person. Who are you, Charlie? Mm. And then he takes off his coat. He sees this as a cue that they're not going to be leaving. And then Audrey pounces on him and attacks him and try, seems to try and strangle him. Do you know how much I fucking hate you? <sighs> so this seems to be both. This seems to have thrown equal amount of people's theories back and forth between is she in a coma, is she in a psychiatric hospital, is she, you know, actually in a play? Is she in her own version of Invitation to Love? I, I think she's definitely in a space that she wants to leave, but whatever it is that is keeping her there, whether mentally or physically, she literally cannot leave that place. Like she wants to leave, but every time Charlie says something like, well, let's go, let's walk out the door, let's do this, she stops and she picks another argument or she starts talking about something else. And it's actually her that seems to be within this conversational framework not letting her leave. But by the same token... Charlie is a gaslighting little motherfucker. Is he? Yeah, okay, right. Because that's interesting. Because there is a way, that was certainly how he seemed at the beginning. But now I wasn't striking, it didn't strike me as particularly as gaslighting behaviour. I've seen it before, but it also feels like this could be her talking to her herself or her talking to her like subconscious or some sort of way You've like got to this. remember this is the same guy who said, Audrey, I don't have a crystal ball, and there was a crystal ball yeah, on true. his fucking desk. And he was withholding information like nobody I've ever seen yeah. before in the first yeah. time I saw him. I was just watching these two. It's just like that's the epitome of like the worst kind of relationship where there's just two people who just want the other person to change and don't want to take responsibility for anything and are just constantly blaming one another for it. And they they can't let it go to the point where they're actually destroying themselves because they they so violently want this other person to be different. It's just really bleak. Mm. Mm. I've sort of been seeing parallels between... Dougie's journey and Audrey's journey 
and I started getting this feeling that she's on the threshold of meeting up a, again with Cooper. So it's like they're both rebuilding themselves from some kind of trauma because Cooper went through this real bad trauma of going into this like strange non-existent space and then coming back out as this other person in another life and he was just like having to rebuild himself from this traumatic experience and just like gradually putting himself back together like I never saw what he was as kind of empty or only responding to what's around him but he was just gradually kind of putting himself back together in a way that needs to be done after a traumatic experience and Audrey I sort of feel like she's doing something similar but hers is so much about anger which would make sense if Cooper is Richard's father and then he disappeared and all you know all the stuff and maybe the rapes or whatever so I'm just wondering if they're both on this threshold of rebuilding themselves to meet I don't know why they're meeting though yeah and I could just be completely wrong there's a strange cadence to these scenes with Audrey and Charlie which are nothing at all like the rest of the show and particularly Charlie Charlie is so bizarre and the way space seems to exist around him Audrey is very real Audrey is always the realest thing in these scenes and you can see the the clear through line of how her younger characterization has become this characterization Mm. Charlie is otherworldly though in a weird way he's kind of like it's almost like a weirdly more eloquent version of Doppelkoop where Doppelkoop doesn't really know how to exist in the real world but he's been here long enough that he's kind of picked up ways of talking and ways of communicating with people that mirror real behaviour but isn't really real behaviour. Charlie, I think, is a very eloquent version of this where clearly he's had these kind of conversations and arguments with Audrey for a very, very, very long time and he knows how to structure these conversations to get her to decide not to do things or to do things and that sort of thing. That's kind of the vibe I'm I'm kind of getting from it and I'm really fascinated to find out whether... Audrey and Charlie actually exist within a real world space or whether they're sandwiched away somewhere else. Mm. Because at the moment he almost seems like an extension of this weird time that she that this room is evoking with its mason scene and the, the the lack of technology and that sort of thing. Is, is his colour scheme all... Does that all match the house and her colour scheme doesn't in terms uh, of their clothes? Yeah, I suppose so. And style of clothes too. Audrey mm. is looking a little bit more modern... Yeah, she's and a little brighter. He's got a like he's he's had a three piece on. Yeah, the he's whole time. tweeds and stuff, whereas Audrey is like bright red jacket. Do you think it could be like a really really expensive customized psychiatric institution for her that, oh that my Ben God, Horn is? That would be cool. Because she's at most like she's at a most relaxed in forties slash thirties vibe or something. That'd be terrifying. <laughs> oh, I love the idea of mental institutions because, that just kind of mess with your mind. Because there has been <laughs> references to the Nut House before and Billy mm. and Tina. And this is so far. This is the only connection we've had. Is yeah. so they could possibly be orderlies or something that she's dealt with in the past. I don't know. It's another theory. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just sitting here, just going like, is this Twin Peaks doing Shutter Island? Oh, is this yeah. what's happening yeah, right yeah. now? <laughs> Anywho, <laughs> I think my main takeaway from this is just these characters are horrible, and I don't know where this is heading. But I'm really, really looking forward to maybe finding out. Because mm. neither of them, are, neither of them are wearing wedding rings. They've talked about 
contracts and that sort of thing in the past. So I don't know. It's interesting. Which brings us to our closing scene of a woman called Ruby sitting alone in a booth in the roadhouse, which is the same booth we've seen each conversation take place in before. Um, the Veils are on stage and they're playing some electro goth pop uh, produced by LP and Dean Hurley. And then these two biker dudes approach and Ruby says her own line, only line for the scene, which is, I'm waiting for someone. The bikers, biker dudes look at each other, nod, and then... <laughs> physically then, lift then physically, her out of her yeah. chair and plop her, her on, on the, the ground. Floor, yeah. yeah. Which is, I don't know, it's a, such a weird mix of feelings about that particular thing because it was kind of fast school, it was kind of horrific. Mm. Well, she was just horrific in a way, but there's also like much better than I thought was going to happen. We're, we've seen so much violence against women in the past that to kind of pick her up and put her down was like, phew, like mm. they're not going to be like Richard. Because I know Charlene Yee and Michael Sarah yes. collaborated on lots mm. of things. Oh my god! Yeah. I was really thinking, is is Wally about to come? Yeah, is that who she's and waiting save for? The day? And I was just wait, like I was like, where's Wally? Where is he? But <laughs> so that kind of altered my first watch. But what ends up happening is, I think, the best ending to any episode of anything ever. Wow, okay. Yep, her, her just crawling into the so, crowd and Sonic screaming along no, with the goth pop. No one's no looking no. at her or helping her or anything. There's no – it's like she just disappeared onto the floor. Mm, also yeah. worth mentioning, she's wearing a mauve cardigan. Nice spot. And I f- almost felt like she was like a conduit for every single woman's righteous scream. At being ignored – and being infantilized and everything not not being deemed important. Everything that we've seen in the mm, series, everything, I just felt like it got dumped out with this amazing scream. And every time I've seen it, I've gotten this like hit of adrenaline and tingles mm. and just oh my god, I love it. I felt like it was this thing of so these guys lift her off the you know where she's sitting, put her on the ground. It's such a fucking entitled move, and then she does her. Crawling around. Crawling and screaming and stuff. But to me there was like, because we'd gone to this sort of grief thing with Dougie Coop and then Margaret and I also feel like Audrey might be stuck in this kind of grief space as well. Mm. And what this character seemed to be was like, you know, because the music that was playing was so sexy goth kind of like thing, which is really not grief. It's Mm. just the wrong emotion for what was going on with the episode and then her grief at being displaced is just being completely ignored and it was just this beautiful moment of like this is what happens if you ignore grief Mm. yeah yeah because it tied in well first of all it looked like she was being forced i thought she was crying while she was crawling like it was almost like she was something else was inhabiting her or something like that i felt Ah. that was just my reading of it though could be quite different but plus i was also listening to the lyrics of the veil song which was all about being an accidental amphibian and losing control Mm. And there was talk of drugs, laudanum and that sort of stuff. So it kind of tied in with that in a way too. Um, but also when she screams, we get these flashes of white mm. across, the, across the screen, mm. which, you know, is a thing about electricity, about power. You know, she's moving in a similar way to the way Dougie was when we last saw him. It was kind of full of these throwbacks, possibly to Maddie's scene as well when she was screaming back mm. in part 12, I think it was. And then we get a cut back to the motel as well so over the closing the song, credits the yeah. song's still going but then it fades out and we just hear the wind and then the scene changes again mm. and we see bosomy woman that, oh, that it was, was chilling yeah yeah mm. 
Yeah, standing in the um, carport. Mm. Yes. I was originally so distracted by the in memory of Margaret Lanterman oh dedication that I did not see the woman figure. Same. I had it pointed out to me. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I've noticed it. I actually only noticed it on my fourth watch. Really? Right. Yeah. yeah. I only got it on my second. Mm. Oh, anyway, to throw back to our... Anime nerds? Yes, anime <laughs> nerds and possibly just animation nerds in general. And I'm figuring, yeah, th- this is a Frostian thing, I'm thinking. I don't think Lynch is sitting around watching anime. But interesting <laughs> little tidbit. So Shalene Yi, her character's name is Ruby. Shalene Yi also plays a character called Ruby with her voice in Steven Universe. Ah. What is Steven Universe? You do not know what Steven Universe is. No, it is no, an extraordinarily popular animated program kind of along the lines of like regular show or adventure time oh yeah is it on yeah. cartoon network it is yeah. yeah right okay cool i also really love the way the sound kind of so that you know the band's playing and then it did another reverb trail as it like faded out into just the sound of that courtyard yes. again it was really nice and yeah because there's some kind of like time space change you know we saw it earlier in the 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 Dutchman's with that stick and the the striking on the ground mm. and how that was like the wrong kind of space for what we were in. So yeah, I felt like this was just doing another thing of transforming spaces or something. Mm. It sounded yeah. very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so Theory Fish is quite short this week because there wasn't, I didn't feel like there was that much new stuff thrown in. I mean, we've got a lot of Wizard of Oz things going on. Mm. Um, and my first Theory Fish is, for, is only four words um, Is Ruby Cooper's Shoes? <laughs> wow. <laughs> She's like impersonating a shoe in a way. She's got the name of a shoe Ruby Slippers from, from uh, Wizard of Oz. Oh my god. I would really love such a shit pun to be real. <laughs> well, he does love the throwback to something mm. that he likes. Mm. Also, sometimes I find that incredibly simplistic approaches to creating artworks can be end up becoming really complex and interesting. Yes. So, like, often you can draw these really simplistic correlations between things, but if you put them in a strange context, suddenly they become so much more than you ever could have dreamed up yourself. Mm. This is this is my trick to making interesting work, by the way. Just <laughs> come up with a really simple idea but throw it in a strange context. So, yeah, I don't know. Mm. So he does this quite a bit in his Lynch's art. Like there's a great picture that I really want to find a copy of, which is where he's just drawn a triangle saying, the triangle says I am a triangle. So good. Which I is brilliant. <laughs> so I think he's, he loves this kind of simplistic stuff, particularly if you look at his own animation, The Angriest Dog in the World and Dumb Land. It's just the most crudest, simplest, stupidest infantile stuff. But And the way he speaks about his artwork in general is incredibly simplistic and just the way he speaks about his life, everything, it's just really simple. But you look at his artworks and you're like, you, there's so much more there that you just can't communicate with words, which I actually really, really sympathise with. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. Okay. Uh, so that was a theory minnow in a way. This The theory fish um, idea is, uh, is Audrey trapped in the wood of the booth at the roadhouse? All the conversations she refers to have taken place in that one booth and she's been overhearing those and... Uh, this is in a similar way to the way that Josie was trapped in a doorknob. 
I just go, that sounds dumb. But also, I thought that Josie being stuck in the doorknob was pretty dumb too. So well, you're not alone, yeah. Because she has been trapped in this, you know, in something. There is wood in the in the Great Northern. We know is loaded. Um, it is has spiritual dimension sort of property. There's a way that she could have become trapped in a piece of wood. She is definitely trapped somewhere. That is my feeling, whether it is physical or metaphorical or mental. I don't know. Yeah, no. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, we don't know enough to be yeah. able to concretely place it in a space. Hmm, okay, but that doesn't sound like a plausible explanation. Why would it be that space, though, would be my question. Like, why why stuck in at the roadhouse? How's that? Yeah, because previously... I don't even remember many scenes of Audrey being in the roadhouse. Great yeah. Northern would make more sense yeah, because it's her family's mm. hotel. Ghostwood would make more sense mm. because of what she said. Meh, fish and no, percolator. Fish and percolator. It could also yeah, be okay. where her trauma happened because you know how sometimes you sort of get stuck uh, yeah. in a place that your trauma happens? Well, there's a lot of trauma happening in that particular booth. Yeah. Mm. Well, no, it, it would make sense to me if Audrey was trapped in the great northern because of trauma just because of so much fucked up shit that went on down in that we don't know what trauma that she is suffering from yeah exactly yeah Yeah. that is to be confirmed or Mm -hmm. alluded to i have my i have two ideas good bring them one is my very silly idea just based on the nice soapy moments that we've had is that twin peaks was sucked into a television and has become Invitation to Love. Whoa. And that's why Invitation to Love does not oh. exist in The Return. This just tr- this just beats all my theory fish. They've all just been knocking, knocked into a cocked hat. That's I feel okay. like the thermometer's burst. <laughs> so many well, that, that, do, that does tie in kind of beautifully into the, the Fire Walk With Me final, final scene theory. <laughs> in which Laura is watching Twin Peaks on the TV that's bathing her in this light and she's smiling and crying out of happiness. She finds this peace in this... It's, the whole show is used as this kind of therapeutic tool for her to come to peace with the life that she's led up until that point. Mm. So that is kind of brilliant, really. That just ties in gorgeously <laughs> with that. that it's, wow. I love it. Telly is saving us all. Well, I think right. Twin Peaks might be saving me. Yeah, I feel like it's taking yeah. me on this journey of recovery and putting me back together the same way Cooper's okay. being put back together. Although how this ends, we, yeah. we don't know how it'll um, be in I, a few weeks. I would like to announce that we will be continuing the podcast at least a week or two after the show because we do have a collective – we're going to have a lot to digest, okay. a lot of our own therapeutic you know, um, mm-hmm. benefits from talking and discussing the show. <laughs> Thanks for telling me this, Andy, on air. So, yeah, I just <laughs> dumped this on everybody, all of our listeners, even kind of myself. I haven't really made up my I mind. I mean, it's gonna... fine. I don't have much else to do. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, I think it would be it would be, be really good. No, I, mean, I think there no, there will be far far more to talk about in terms of just like the the series as a whole, whether we will have any chance or whether there'll be any openings to have more. Yeah, there's also kind of several people I've interviewed who asked to have their interview played once the show had finished because they felt they'd said too much during the interview. Yes, which yes, I didn't think they had. We got we, we we got PR shuttered, friends. Yeah. Have you interviewed Charlene Yee? No. Can you please? Um, yes. She's in demand, but I'd love to. Yes. I want to know. I want to know what she was channeling when she was screaming. Whether she can tell us or not, I don't know. But I want to know a lot. Andy is very good at finding these people. Well, so in, this ca- in the case him. of the interview that people are about to hear, but Jake Wardle, he found us. 
because I I tweeted out as a fake tweet that was pretending to be his mum on Twitter because I was like I would be fascinated to know what the story was with Freddie Sykes's mum like you know like, well he just came home with the gardening glove and then he got on a plane and went to England what's with that I don't know you got any ideas I don't know what's going on here I mean it's just nonsense isn't it it's a story so, one of my favourite moments on Twitter, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, and then of all the people to reply, Freddie Sykes himself goes starts joining the conversation. And I was like, Good Lord, is this really Jake Wardle? Because he didn't have a blue tick. Oh. So I was like, Are oh, you really Freddie Sykes? He's like, Yep, legit. And I was like, Get on the blower, mate. In it. In it. Yeah, yeah. Like, come on, proper chat. Oh my god. So David Lynch is going to hear this one day. Your impersonation. He's going to put you in something because that's how Jake Wardle ended up in Twin Peaks. If oh yes. Only, yeah. As you're about to hear in the forthcoming mm. discussion. Um, I also just wanted to quickly mention that based on everything we've seen in the last two episodes, all of the Wizard of Oz references and everything, my it's not really a theory, it's more of a prediction that in the next two weeks we're going to, in well, next week we're going to be dealing with the theme of courage very, very strongly, and then the week after we're going to be dealing with the theme of home. Right, okay. Hmm. I'm so ready. Dorothy. Right, yeah, okay. And who who is Dorothy? I think I think Cooper. Oh. All forms of Cooper. Okay. Is Dorothy. Yeah. Nice one. And here is our interview with Jake Wardle. Can I begin by asking how you wound up on Twin Peaks the return? Uh well basically I um I made a, an accent video on YouTube uh a while back now, um two thousand and ten. Um and it went viral, and it got millions of views. And um, a couple of years later, David Lynch saw it, and uh, he really enjoyed it and got in touch. And uh, I ended up Skyping with him for about three years, discussing a potential role for me in one of his projects. And then, uh, yeah, then I ended up in Twin Peaks, basically. <laughs> wow. So, so he just, like, did he personally call you up himself? Um, no, what happened was he... Um, he got the executive producer, uh, Sabrina Sutherland, to uh, oh, yeah. send me a message on YouTube. And then she set up a Skype with us and, uh, yeah, went from there, really. Well, were you familiar with a lot of his work? Uh, yes, I'd seen a few of his films. Um, I'd seen The Elephant Man uh, mm. uh, twice, actually. Um, uh, the second time I saw The Elephant Man was at school uh, when I was studying uh, drama. And our final performance was uh, like a play ad- adaptation of The Elephant Man, and they showed us his film. Um, and I ended up playing The Elephant Man in this school play. So it's right. quite an okay. interesting coincidence. You know, I had no idea that years later, you know, the director of that film would, you know, contact me. So, <laughs> so yeah, um, very surreal. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine Sabrina contacting you must have been quite a strange experience as well. Was this mixed in with a lot of other weirdness that would? I imagine happen along with making a viral YouTube video that I imagine changes your life on a number of levels. Yeah, it is. It is pretty much. I still actually can't believe it happened. You know, it's uh, still feels like it was a dream, but it was. It was absolutely amazing. Best experience of my life. And uh, yeah, it's been a while now. Like it's been in post production for over a year, so it, it's really cool now to finally see how it all came out. And uh, the reaction from the fans has been great so far. Um, yeah, loving it. So, have you had to sit? Have you had to sit on it for the last eighteen months, like not being allowed to tell anybody? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I was allowed to tell people that I was in it, but I wasn't allowed to give any details, and I'm still not allowed to give any details of what you know, what's still to come. Um, 
But for the most part, I don't even know myself what's still to come because we were only sort of given information about our little bits that we did. So the, the uh, I'm, I'm watching with sort of the same sort of like as as an audience member as well who uh, doesn't know what really what's going on. So, yeah, it's uh, it's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> so what were your thoughts on seeing the dialogue? Um, um, of course, I'm only referring to the scene that's been screened so far, the one with you oh, yeah, um, James. I, I, th- I thought it was great. It was really funny because um, nobody really uses Cockney rhyming slang anymore. Um, I, in fact, I don't even know all of the Cockney rhyming slang words. David Lynch actually knows more rhyming slang than I do. Um, and I could see he was, you know, he really liked all that sort of stuff. And uh, the way Freddie was written, you know, he really was that full-on sort of old-school stereotypical Cockney. Um, so I had to kind of really, like, lay on the accent and, um, you know, proper, like, go for it. You know, no holding back. And uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I really right. enjoyed it. <laughs> so did you get to develop um, Freddie's backstory yourself? Or was that something that was... Uh, yes, I, I, I sort of, well, he had the backstory that was, you know, parts of it were mentioned in the script, but the rest I kind of just filled in the blanks myself, really. Okay. So um, that, was, that was fun. What, what else can you tell us about Freddie? What's happening? What I'm confused. It's like, what, what's his family making of it? <laughs> well, not much has been mentioned about his family, so I just have to fill in, my blank, uh, fill in the blanks myself. So, I mean, I imagine... Freddie as probably be being the youngest in his family because the accent he's speaking in is very old school and there's not a lot of people of his generation that has that accent as you can hear I don't have that accent anymore and I'm an East London native but um, there still are like some you know I've met at least one or two people my age that have his accent but it's mostly the older generation so I kind of imagine Freddie as being the youngest in his family, having a lot of older family members that he's quite close to and um, being more influenced by them than the rest of his generation, which kind of makes him stand out. I mean, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the British viewers actually didn't, didn't like the accent because it was so full on. Uh, some people even thought that it was fake. and Well, it was fake in, in terms of it's not my natural accent anymore, but some people thought that some, some uh, Brits even assumed that I was uh, like an American actor putting it on, like, you know, Dick Van Dyke or something. So, yeah, 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 I've seen um, that but, name thrown around a bit. Yeah, but no, it's not, it's not, I wouldn't say Dick Van Dyke, because um, my pronunciations and the accent is, is accurate. I mean, it does exist, and it's just like that. Um, I'd say yeah. more like, more like Danny Dyer, that's kind of who comes to yeah. mind. And I will like, like lay on the cockney. Yeah. Yeah, and Guy Rich, you know, so that's that's the sort of cockney I was I was going for, basically. Right. Well, it, it also, I mean, the, the tone that shifts during your monologue is kind of phenomenal. Like, it begins in this really strange place where you're, like, for somebody like me who's, who's watched the series 20, 30 times at least, suddenly having this accent and this character appear is so disconcerting. But yeah. then you kind of, by the end of your dialogue, it's kind of tied back into the mythology in this really bizarre way. Um, I thought it was kind of mm. miraculous in a way. Did you actually have much preparation? Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, I had the script uh, in advance, and um, I spent quite a lot of time rehearsing uh, that monologue because it was a it was a massive, huge, you know, chunk of text to memorise. So, yeah, they 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 posted the script to me well in advance, so I mm. had uh, enough time to learn it. Okay, and you chatted with um, David Lynch over Skype about it, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Did he give you much directive? 
Uh, yeah, you know, he gave he gave a bit of direction. Um, like he helped me interpret some things in the script. You know, that I that I wouldn't have sort of picked up just from text on a page. So it was, you know, it was interesting. And his he's a great director, and he really knows how to get the best performance out of out of the actors. Yeah. So. Okay. so, did you ask, you know, what is the fireman or who is the fireman? Did you did you what did you ask for like background on these sorts of characters? Um, no, I just because it's because it's like you know it's like Twin Peaks. It's almost like anything's possible. So I thought, okay, you know, from from what I'd seen of the original series, all this supernatural stuff, I just thought, I I originally I didn't know that the fireman was like the giant. I didn't know that originally. Um, but it, it went like it made sense that it was him. So no, not too much detail was given. I mean, like we we really didn't get told much at all, really. So, right. Did, did, so did you get to decide on the hardware store and these various other points in the dialogue? Well, not like. What do you mean by that? Do you mean like oh, uh, like actually the, have a real world location in mind, or yeah, that sort of thing, or an actual alleyway like these? You mentioned cobblestone. Yeah. Yeah, cobbles. Um, well, I. I kind of decided on the area that Freddie's from, um, the part of East London he's from, because I'm from Newham, um, but I, I feel I get the feeling Freddie was more like Bethnal Green, so I decided he's from Bethnal Green because that sort of comes across to me as a more of a more of a Cockney area than than the part of East London I live in. I wasn't too specific on you know the exact alleyway or the exact um, you know store that he went to. I decided that he was uh, born in the same hospital as I was, which is the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel. But whereas I grew up in uh, Newham in East London and lost my Cockney accent, he grew up in Bethnal Green and, and kept his. That's right. Okay. That was sort of the sort of little backstory I created for him. <laughs> okay. Um, can I ask, what did David Lynch talk to you about on Skype in this, over the three years? Did he kind of just was he just interested in your? Linguistic ability. Yeah, well, it? mainly it was it was it was very casual, you know, very casual conversation, sort of just getting to know each other, um, and then he'll drop a few sort of hints about, you know, the character he had in mind, um, and then like, a few updates of of where they're going with the project, and uh, yeah, just little, you know, just stuff like that. And it was like, you know, once every two to six months, you know, I'd have a little Skype with David Lynch, just a few updates. That sort of thing. Um, so, do you have uh, projects on the go now, like other acting jobs? No other acting jobs yet. I mean, I mainly do voiceovers these days. Um, but hopefully, I'll be getting some more acting projects soon because now I have, you know, something to show. Because this is my first professional acting role. So hopefully, I can I can you know use this you know footage from Twin Peaks to get cast in more projects and, and take my acting career further. Yeah, well, he's certainly made a massive impression. Um, it's been really interesting to see just uh, just how much the, the discussion, because, you know, part 14 was quite a a, a notable instalment in mm. the return, but you've kind of taken it to another direction entirely. I noticed you in your dialogue you say clerk instead of clerk. Was that something you were directed to do? Um, it was in the script, and uh, I was. it just sort of, yeah, I just sort of went with it, like... I just I was so engrossed with with Freddie's story and and I could have sworn I've heard it's not something we normally say but I I could have sworn I've heard some someone English person say that before um, yeah so okay. I didn't sort of I didn't really pay too much attention to that bit I was more concerned with just you know 
being engrossed in the story and, and telling it to, to James like as if I was remembering it. And when I was telling it him, I was actually imagining the story like how I had imagined it playing out in my mind. So. Yeah, okay. You said you were sitting down watching The Return along with everybody else. Were, were you like quite confused as to how you would fit in, given that, particularly in the first part? It's uh, not even that much uh, yeah, take place I, no, I, I had no idea how it would lead up to my part. I, I didn't have a clue. Literally, I only got my script and that was it. That was the only thing I knew. It was just my mm. script. It was it was interesting, and it was interesting actually as we started to approach part fourteen. I, I, I saw like a few things that sort of suggested, um, like when uh, Gordon Cole was looking at that vortex in the air. I was thinking, oh, that's 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 the one that Freddie got sucked up into. Obviously, I couldn't yeah. tell anyone at the time because my my scene hadn't aired. But I was like, ooh. Oh, now it's getting interesting. Now it's getting closer. Now it's starting to link, and it's it's been really cool seeing those little clues that are starting to lead up to you know, my part. Oh, fantastic! I can't imagine how exciting that must be. I mean, the way that we're all putting clues yeah. together out here in the world without your insight. Are there any other insights you're able to give without spoiling anything? Because of course, I don't want to push your NDA. That would be unprofessional. Uh, not really. There, you know, there's more, but that's all I'm going to say. There's more coming up. I mean, we've got you know, four more episodes to go, so. But that's all I'm. That's all I can say at the moment. Yeah, I have, okay. I have to be a bit of a job's worth about it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah, absolutely. Is there a weird way of feeling like it's probably going to be downhill now because he works with like David Lynch? <laughs> well, um, well, hopefully not. But I do feel that no matter what I do uh, in my acting career, no matter where it takes me, I'm always going to look back at Twin Peaks with with fond fond memories, and uh, it's always going to have a special place in my heart. So definitely, it's. Uh, yeah, uh, the best possible start ever, and it'll always be with me. And I really do hope they'll make another one, and I hope Freddie will make a, a comeback. But we don't, you know, I, we don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen. So, mm. who knows? Thank you so mm-hmm. much, Jake. It's a real thrill to talk to you. Oh. Um, and, um, You're welcome, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to Twin Peaks, the Return of Season 3 podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do it on t- at TP Season 3 on Twitter. And thank you again to Thembi and Jess for joining us for a goddamn rousing round of criticism. Yes, thank you very much for your sound insights. Thank you very much for having us. It's very fun. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Got a couple of lady cadavers on him busting Mr. C's Schindler down the rubber dub. Uh-oh.